right. Good morning and Merry Christmas. I can say that. Finally, I've been waiting. Uh, I love this time of year. Uh, I got Christmas tree yesterday, so I'm already getting, I don't have all my decorations up yet, but getting there. Um, and, but I always got into this time of year, but my, my brother and I, um, my grandma growing up would always bring over this giant box of unfrosted, undecorated sugar cookies. And my brother and I would, well, all of them, my sister too, but particularly my brother and I would really get into our Christmas cookie decoration because we, we would want to get the sprinkles in just the right places, so we would break out tweezers just to place the sprinkles just so on the cookies. And I don't know if you know the comic Beetle Bailey, but um, my brother one year took a teapot, turned it upside down and says, that looks like Sarge. And somewhere in our picture folder is this picture of this Christmas cookie that looks just like Sarge when he's like mid-yell at Beetle Bailey because he took the sprinkles perfectly to create Sarge. It was great. Anyways, um, but I love Christmas. And um, so we are going into the season of Advent and we're going to be starting a new uh, sermon series. We're putting a pause on the First Corinthians just for this season of Advent. And we're going to be looking at this uh, series, Unwrapping the Gift. And we're going to be looking through the arc of Scripture. We're starting today in Genesis. We're going to go through the Old Testament, and we're going to end with the Gospel. But, uh, like I said, we're, we're, we're starting in Genesis. We're starting at the very beginning. And by the way, spoiler alert, the gift we're unwrapping is Jesus, in case you didn't figure that out. But in order to unwrap this gift, in order to understand why we need a savior, we, we, we need to establish the need for the gift itself. There's a need for this gift of salvation, but if you don't understand the need for the gift, uh, it, it demeans the gift itself. And, and so to understand this, Let's give an example. Let's say, uh, I throw back, back to myself when I was six. At Christmas, let's say somebody gave me a box full of, a, with nice dress pants, a nice dress shirt, some underwear, because you need underwear. And, and I open this gift and I go, I wanted Legos. My need, I did not understand my need for this gift. I need clothes. I definitely need underwear. If you don't think you do, then I have questions. But, um, but you, you need these things, but without understanding the need for it, I can't comprehend the gift itself. Or uh, another example would be, let's, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a car guy. I really enjoy uh, cars, but... Uh, Let's say I wasn't, and I didn't understand the first thing about cars, and somebody gave me a, a Ferrari. I might look at that and go, wow, that looks like a pretty nice car. I like some things about it. It looks nice. But if I don't understand the value of what's been giving me, the, the sheer value alone, I, don't, I, I, I can't appreciate the gift in its fullest. So as we talk about this gift for a Savior, we need to understand what we are being offered and, and why we need it in the first place. So if we go to Scripture, there are several words throughout 
scripture that describe our condition that needs, leads us to need this gift of a savior. Uh, the words that we see might be offense or transgression, uh, but the most common word that uh, we all know is sin. The word that you will see throughout scripture and that our society knows is sin. Basically this word means to fail, to miss the mark. But today, many have decided that uh, culturally we don't need the concept of sin anymore. And they push back. They've decided that this word sin is regressive, an old school concept that we don't need. But I think if we really examine that belief, uh, we'll see that that can't be true of you and that can't be true of me. And 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 it won't be true even of our culture, even as our culture tries to say that it is. And here's what I mean. If we cannot say that something is wrong, and I, and I don't mean relatively wrong, I don't, I don't mean what's wrong for you is not wrong for me, or what's wrong for me is not wrong for you. I mean, if something is, if we cannot say that something is holistically wrong, uncategorically wrong, that, that something in its very nature, then we can't say that anything is wrong culturally for a group. Uh, if, if I can't say that there is good, both good and evil, then I can't say something like racism is wrong, that it's evil. If I can't say that there is good and evil, I can't say that corruption is wrong. Any more than I can say that the Houston Astros winning the World Series is wrong. Like, it just becomes opinion and relative. All I can say is these things are not, are not my preference. So see, in the same breath, as our culture tries to say that there is no such thing as sin, and then they go out and protest the things that they deem are wrong. So either there is sin, there are things that are uncategorically wrong in their nature, or it's simply preference. Now, most of the world agrees certain things are wrong, and this has been true for thousands of years. Um, that's why most religions will teach uh, the, the fidelity to one partner. They promote honesty. We want honesty. There's typically uh, uh, something about justice, achieving justice. We all understand in our core being that there is a need for justice, but, but something has gone wrong. We all, and, and we struggle to try and fix it, and yet no culture has, seems to figure it out. We strive for it, we fight for it, but yet we miss the mark. So that is what we're talking about today. But there is hope in this, because in identifying the problem, in identifying what is Wrong in, in calling it wrong, we are able to look then for what can correct that. But before we get started, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this time of year that we are reminded uh, of just how much you love us. God, you love us all year long, every day of our lives, but, uh, but we are reminded especially of that during the season of Advent. And Lord, as we await for your Son, I pray that you would Build in our hearts an anticipation and a desire for his presence in our lives. God, I pray that you would speak through this word this morning. Speak through scripture that we are looking at to each of our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
Okay, so we are going back to the very beginning today. All the way back to start Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke, and it was. And he separates day and night. And then God goes on doing this for six days total. He's just creating stuff. Each day, he creates something new. But then, on the sixth day, it says that there's something special. Uh, and, and we see this in Genesis 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. So here, when God finishes with this, he looks at his cre creation and says it's very good. Up until this point, it's been good. But now, with humanity, it is very good. So humanity has begun, and things are very good. Now, the reason why it says very good as opposed to just good is then we see this in chapter 2, verse 7. It says, then the Lord God, talking about how he, he formed man, says the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. Now, in Hebrew, the word for breath uh, is two things. It can mean breath as in just breathe in, breathe out. But it also can mean spirit. And so when it says that God breathed life into man, it's not just being like God is just, okay, be alive. He's breathing his spirit into man. Man is created in, in the image of God. And so God is imprinting man with his image here. He's breathing his spirit into man. And then in verse 15 and, uh, to 17, we see... We read this, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, here we go. The stage is set for humanity. And maybe if you're visiting church today, maybe if you're exploring this religion thing and, and you're not sure, you're, you're hearing this and you're going like, yeah, that sounds about right. That's what I expect from religion. That's what I, what I expect religion to teach. There's a God that made everything, and, but there's work to do and, and there are rules. And if you're good at following the rules, then things will go well for you. And if you don't, things will go very bad. Like, this is what, God's makes, what makes God happy. Do these things. You'll satisfy God. But if we dig into what we've read so far and we look at this, I think there's something different in this scripture uh, here than uh, what would be true in many, many other faiths. And, and I've heard this question, and maybe you have too. It's been posed to me many times. Why would God create that tree in the first place? God's creating everything, and he's making all this good stuff, and he's made man, and it's very good, and he makes this tree, and he puts it in the garden, and is like, hey, don't eat this tree. 
Because if you do, you'll die. And so there's like this question of why, why would he even uh, put this tree in there in the first place? It's like you know, giving a, a kid a bunch of candy and there's some poisonous candies mixed in. Like, okay, don't die, right? But I actually don't believe that's what's happening here. God, uh, some people would, would look at this and say God is risking his creation. But I don't think he is. I don't think he is. And here's what I mean. If I have a computer and I make my, I pro, install a program on my computer to tell me I love you every time I open that computer, but then a dear friend of mine calls me up and says, hey man, I really love you. What means more? The friend calling me up. So is it the words that I want? No. It's not just the words, I love you. The words in and of themselves don't really mean anything. The reason why the computer, every time I open it, telling me that I love you is that I have predetermined the response. I've predetermined it. It cannot change. A computer can't just, I can't open it one morning and, and it says, I've decided not to tell you this. It can't. So here's what it comes down to. Love necessitates a choice. So here God has created good things. He's created good trees, good fruit, good animals. All that he has created is good. Everything is perfect, but he will never make you have him. He doesn't force you into relationship with him. He will say, this is all for you. You can have all of this. But if you don't want me, there are other options. He puts a tree here. says, this is the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I don't want you to eat this. And if you do, there are consequences to that decision, but you can. But we'll get to that. And Adam is given work. Work is part of the garden. But it's not toil. It's actually something really beautiful. God uh, gives Adam work, and and he starts bringing animals to him. And he's having Adam name these different animals. And... I think this is really beautiful because it's, it's, it's sharing in the joy and love of creation itself. It's not toil. It's creative service. And then we see another thing. We see woman created. It says in chapter 2, verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to man. We have been and are since the very beginning created for relationship. And in the garden we see this. We see this loving relationship between God, man, woman, and it, it reflects the same love, the same selflessness, the same service that is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit toward one another. But then something goes wrong. And that's where we're going to pick up in our main text today in Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bear, bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. But by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of dust you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The, man's wife, uh, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, a flaming sword that turned away to guard the way to the tree of life. All right. So that first verse, serpent, Satan, is in the garden. At this point, Scripture is kind of describing heaven and earth are almost combined, overlapped. And God's literally walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, and there are spiritual beings present. So that's why I think we see Satan here in this way. Uh, now, one other thing to understand is that the, the word Satan uh, is not a name like John Smith Satan. It's not what it is. 
The translation from Hebrew is actually the Satan, um, and it has that definite article before it, the, and it means the adversary. So God has made his perfect creation. There's this fallen creature who has placed himself as an adversary to God. He's trying to establish an opposite opposing kingdom to God's kingdom here on earth. And now as we look at the next few verses, we have to start asking ourselves, how do we relate to this story? How do we interact with this? Because uh, if we are honest, I believe that you and I, we've lived this at least once and probably daily. Okay? So, Satan says to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of this, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, do you guys notice anything here that Eve said that God did not? She adds a little statement in there, says, and you shall not touch it. God never said that. Somewhere along the way, Eve had started to believe that she could not touch this fruit uh, and not touching it was part of God's command to Adam. She's in paradise with Adam, the one who received this word from God. But somehow over time, she's become to believe this. And so now she's living her daily life going, don't touch it, don't touch it, don't touch it. She's walking past it, don't touch it. God never said that. But then she's told she can, and Satan says you won't die. And maybe she starts to think, well, what if I can what if the serpent is right? She walks up to it, examines it, and it says she sees that it's a delight to the eyes. It's really good looking. It looks really good. And she's looking at it, and there's no voice from heaven being like, no, don't do it. And my guess is, I think because it says, she, it says don't touch it, I think she touches it first. I don't think she eats of it right away. I think she touches it and just like probably pokes at it. I don't know. Just, nothing happens. Now she has a problem because in her mind she, she can't touch it and so now I, she's wondering, did God lie to me? I've been told my whole life I, I don't touch it and nothing happened. Maybe God is holding out on me. Maybe I need to rethink this whole thing. And we do this. We set up false tests in our mind that we, we maybe believe God has said something which he hasn't actually said, which then leads us to question God. Grow, growing up, and this is a little bit of a confession to you guys, but know this, that they knew this when I was hired here. But when I was growing up, I was taught, you don't have sex until you're married. You don't have sex until you're married because it's not God's best for you. It's not what God designed sex for. But somewhere along the way, I started to believe that if I, I did that, I would feel, one, A, horribly guilty, 
And two, because I wasn't supposed to do it, it wouldn't be enjoyable, it, would, it wouldn't feel good, I would hate it, it would ruin my life. I had set up this false test for God in my mind. But one thing led to another. I started dating this girl in high school and dated into college and eventually we slept together. And I liked it. Things went pretty well after that. We dated for a few years. That's when I started to question God and go, what is God's best for me? Is he holding out on me? I don't know. Nothing bad seemed to happen. At that point, didn't feel guilty. And it actually led me away from my faith for some time. I rejected faith because I started to believe that God was holding out on me. I said, I don't need this. So be very careful with false tests. Praise God that he brought me back to submission to his will. Praise God that he brought me back to a place of conviction where I realized my need for him. But at the time, it led me to reject him because I had built up this false test. Later on, a pastor that I knew, I was wrestling with faith. I was starting to think maybe, maybe I got things wrong. And he says, hey man, can you tell me where in, in the Bible it says that sin won't be pleasurable? Can you tell me where in Scripture it says you'll feel guilty? And I couldn't, because it's not there. Somehow along the lines, I started to believe that obedience was doing what I had to do, and if I didn't do it, things would start to go really bad, and there wouldn't be enjoyment, and there would only be guilt... It was a false test, just like Eve had set up. I don't know what it is for you, but there's just this part of us that does want to touch the fruit. Right? We set up this test of being like, we'll get really close, okay, nothing bad's going on, and then there's a line that gets crossed. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and now he ate. So now Satan knows that the greatest devastation for all of humankind, what will ruin what God has created and said was very good, will be to know good and evil. They already know good. They've only ever experienced good. But to understand this, what is going on here, we need to understand the Hebrew. And the word to know, to know good and evil, is the word yada. The word yada, it's not just to know something intellectually. The word yada uh, means to know something uh, bodily, experientially. And, and so if I were to be up here and describe to you, okay, I'm riding a bike. You're riding a bike and you get thrown off the bike. You're going really fast and you get thrown off the bike and you're on asphalt and you're sliding along and what happens? You, you get road rash and it just, it peels back, right? It peels back that layer of skin and it hurts. Or what if I'm to describe to you the sound of really long nails scraping across a, a chalkboard? Yep, okay, that got a few of you. 
I hear you see some of you squirming a little bit. That what you're doing is you are yadaing these things as I describe them. Because you've experienced that, you've heard nails across a chalkboard, or you've, you've got thrown off a bike, you've had that moment of just road rash. And so you are knowing them through the experience that you've had, you're knowing them. Like, even though you're not actually having that happen to you right now, you're still kind of feeling it. It's not like, oh yes, the surface, the epidural layer of skin being pulled back as in my body is experiencing friction with asphalt. It's not an intellectual thing. You're experiencing it. You're reliving that moment and you are, and, and, and this is what Satan's doing. He's trying to destroy humanity to know evil. And we're like, yeah, evil's terrible, but they don't know that. They've never experienced it. They don't know what evil is. They've only ever experienced good. And may, they're going here, maybe God is holding out on me. Maybe I need to experience, to know evil, to yada evil. It says in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here's the deal. This is them knowing sin in their body. They're shame. They're caught up. And this is what some of us do. We feel the shame of being caught up in this, and there's conviction at some point, and then we hide. There's justification, there's hiding, and, and, and we see this it's over and over. So here's the thing. If you lie once, you're a liar. It's not just a repeat thing. If you lie, you're a liar. If you steal once, it makes you a thief. It says in Scripture to, to, to lust after a person in your mind, to use them for your own gratification, you are committing adultery. If you're angry, hatred at somebody, resentment in your heart, Scripture says it's the same as murder. So we've made it through four things, and I'm willing to bet that most of us in this room are lying, thieving, adulterous murderers. Right? Merry Christmas! <laughs> um, sorry, not really. I'm not that sorry. If we're honest with ourselves, we all suffer from these same problems. What do we do? We do the same thing that Adam and Eve did when God confronts them, we hide and we blame. When, when hiding doesn't work, we, we, we try to create an image of ourselves. Social media is great for that. We try and craft this image that makes ourselves look really good. We try to put on this pure representation of ourselves, not how we really are, but how we would like others to see us. And when that doesn't work, we turn to blame, and just like they did. Verse 12, the man said, the woman, her fault, that you gave me, your fault, God, gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? She points her finger at Satan. 
They blame God, they blame each other, they blame the devil, but they refuse to take responsibility on themselves. And, and in verses 16 and 17, we hear what it will be like to yada, to know evil because of sin. God says to Eve that she will know pain in childbearing, that her, and her desires will be contrary to her husband's, and, and, and that he shall rule over her. So instead of mutual interdependent relationships filled with love and sacrifice for uh, one another in value as God intended, sin has set them against each other. Both man and woman will seek the advantage in the relationship, and their wills will do battle with one another. And, and, and to Adam, he tells him, cursed is the very ground because of you. Now, hear this. This is not God cursing you uh, in, in, in this sense. He's saying this is the result of your curse that you have brought on yourselves. You've experienced work as this joyful thing, but because of you, sin, well, you will struggle. And God, this is God saying, you don't want me. You don't want the good that I had for you. I give this, this beautiful world, I give you my spirit, myself, but if you don't want me, you don't have to have me, but this is what life will look like without me. But this would be a really terrible place to close if we left it right here. But praise God, we don't have to because then in Genesis 3, 15, this is the very first gospel message of all of Scripture. And this is what gives us hope. This is the gift that we are just starting to unwrap today and we're going to unwrap in the weeks to come. God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is one verse in Genesis 3. At the very beginning, God's already pointing to Jesus. In the very beginning of everything, God's going, yeah, I'm sending somebody who's going to rescue you. Satan is setting up this adversarial kingdom against God where there will be evil and suffering, but God will send somebody to make things right. And then after this, there's one other thing that points us to the Gospels. And it's really interesting. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. God, right here, makes a sacrifice of an innocent creation to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. Do you see that? Because it says he made them clothing of skin. They had made themselves clothings of leaves, but God made them clothings of skin. So he took the life of an innocent creation who had done no wrong. He makes a sacrifice to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. And this is the, the, first, this is the first foreshadowing of Jesus for you and I. I have no idea what your shame is. And by the way, I'm not up here being like, I want you to feel shame. I want you to feel this guilt. I'm not saying that. I, I don't want that for you. But I know that many of us do. He's saying, 
If we're honest with ourselves, where, where we fall short, where we miss the mark, where new clothes and, and new profile pictures and reinventing images don't cover us, we know our need. We know our need. But Jesus came, he lived, he died to cover your shame. He was the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. Right now we live in a place of exile, banished from the garden. We live in a place of exile where we see the pain, the sadness, the brokenness of our world, but it's temporary. The exile is temporary because what we are told in the life of Jesus is that he came back and he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place, a new home. If you have hope in Christ today, he was the sacrifice. He is the one who had come to do battle with Satan. He was and is the sacrifice of the innocent who would cover our shame. And he is the invitation to go back to end our exile, to be at home with our creator. And that is the gift that we are going to be looking at this Advent season. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your son. I thank you for Jesus. God, I pray that this, this season of Advent, that you would just bring us in humility to a place where we recognize our need over and over again for your son. God, at Christmas we, we celebrate and we're so happy for this gift. But, we, but I pray that we would truly understand our need for this gift. It wouldn't just be a, a, a month where we give gifts and we eat food and we decorate cookies. God, I just pray that we would see our need for this gift of Jesus. And I pray this in his name. Amen.